Uh, however, I, I feel like, uh, in view of the questions that have been raised with regard to assurance, it might be good for me to try to say something by way of a summary kind about the ground of assurance as I see it growing out of living by faith in future grace and where you look when you don't have assurance and how you fight that fight. I do think that assurance does rise and fall in the Christian life and it would be ideal if it never fell. But I think uh, history teaches us and I think the, the Bible shows us that we must be restored often. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation is a common prayer, I believe, in the Christian life. And he restores my soul. Psalm 23 is a common theme. It's not as though we live on a straight line trajectory toward glory. I heard someone say the other day, the Christian life is like a yo-yo. You know what a yo-yo is? That isn't... A, okay. Thought maybe you had another word for that. A yo-yo in the hands of a man going upstairs. And I think that's accurate. So that every day has its downer, but it may not in the whole scheme of things be as low Comparative to the whole possibility of lowness that it was the day before. <laughs> so, I, at least my own testimony is, given the way I'm wired, I have a lot of low seasons. In fact, I mentioned, I think, in one of the chapters in Desiring God, that there are those Thursdays, that's my day off, where I can sit in the Nokomis Park in the grass and feel so depressed I can't remember my children's names. That's low. So I think those seasons do happen, and with them, assurance rises and falls. I have a very dear friend at the church who went through about four months of very great darkness. I mean, it was William Cooper who lived in this country. You all know William Cooper. Now you talk about low. I do believe William Cooper was born again, though there were seasons when he certainly did not know that he was. And uh, the, the worst cases are those kinds of cases where horrible depression will settle upon you and you're, you can hardly be reasoned with in any way at all. And you wonder if there is a God and if you're his and God can bring us through those times. But for the ordinary ups and downs, especially deathbed wrestlings, that's where we really want to be assured is just before we die that we're going to meet a favorable God and not a, an angry God. Um, and that's certainly Michael Eaton's passion, to help people rest in a favorable God. Um, I think that the um, essence of saving faith is not the assurance that God is on your side first. In other words, you don't say to an unbeliever, what you need to know first is that God is on your side. 
And the reason I say that is not just because I'm deducing from something from an ironclad Calvinistic logic that says there's election, and I don't know if he's on their side. I don't think that's the way you have to think. You don't have to think logically. All you have to do is think exegetically here and experientially. That is, in the Bible, there are people who mistakenly thought God was on their side. Mistakenly believed he was on their side and he wasn't. Matthew 7.22, did we not do many mighty works in your name? They were stunned when they heard the words, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a very frightening departure. Depart from me, I never knew you. This is not rewards we're talking about here. This is depart from me, I never knew you. Even though they thought, and had some measure of assurance that he was on their side and they were working for him and doing many mighty works. So I don't think the first word of the gospel to impart life and assurance to people is God is on your side. God is on the side of people who love him. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can't say indiscriminately in the world, God will work everything together for your good. I can't walk out on the street and go up to anybody and say, you know what? Here's good news for you. God will work everything together for your good without fastening a condition on there of some kind. Because the Bible fastens a condition on there of some kind. And the context of Romans 8 is in the context of following by, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's, that's what works together for good, is that he's going to now do a working together to bring you into the image of his son. Well, what, what is then the beginning of Christian faith, saving faith, faith in future grace? What's the beginning of it? It has two parts. The first is a seeing of the glory of Christ in the gospel. When you evangelize, you must portray God in Christ as glorious through the cross in his provision for sinners. Now, I'm getting this from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 4 and 6. This is an unbelievably important two verses, I believe. It says, I'll start in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. For in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Now, here's the seeing idea to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel that we preach in this verse, it says, is the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that gospel is light 
when by God's grace the blinding effects of Satan are removed. So the first thing that happens in conversion is the spiritual sight of glory in Christ in the gospel. Let's read verse 6 because it puts it in different words but almost the same. Verse 6. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now that's a reference to Genesis chapter 1. This God who once said, let there be light. It is this God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now compare verse 4 and verse 6. You'll see how similar they are. In verse 4, it is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In verse 6, it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those are the same thing. Just using different words. Only in verse 6, we see the origin of it. Namely, the God who once upon a time brought light into being in the universe has now brought light into being in our hearts. So if you ask, well, how can I get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ or the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ who is the image of God? How can I get that? The answer is God gives that. We This is what drives my life. This is why I write books. This is why I preach. We do our dead level best to portray Christ as glorious and beautiful and persuasive. Paul says, I do everything to persuade men. Second Corinthians 5.13. I want to persuade them. Now, he knows only God can do this. But we've got an absolutely indispensable role. Nobody gets saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. One of my chapters in the missions book is to argue against those who are saying today you can get saved out there somewhere in the deepest, darkest people groups without any revelation of God in the gospel. I don't believe that's true. So you are essential in this dynamic, miraculous, supernatural process of light going on in the heart in response to the gospel. So the beginning of faith and assurance is a supernatural divine light. That's a phrase from Jonathan Edwards. A divine and supernatural light being imparted to the heart comes straight out of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That's not 18th century language. That's straight out of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Light must be imparted to the soul that is mediated through the preaching of the gospel where Christ is portrayed as irresistibly attractive because of the grace of God that flows through him and the sufficiency of his cross for all who will see the light. There's huge theological things at stake here. 
The first warrant of assurance is light in the soul. You can't give assurance to somebody who doesn't have it. If they don't see glory, if they don't see beauty, if they don't see desirability, if they don't see treasure, if they don't see satisfaction, if they're not granted to have their eyes open like Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to the gospel. If that doesn't happen, you can't. Water down the gospel enough to give anybody assurance. You can't strip away enough conditions to give anybody assurance. Assurance grows first out of a divinely imparted supernatural light. And if people don't have it, you can pray, you can persuade, you can weep. Paul wept. He wept over his kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 9, 3. You don't just you don't just stand back. This is a distortion of Calvinism to say, well, it's God, if God's going to choose him, if he has to do the miracle to get him saved, then I'll just watch and see if it's going to happen. You weep. You say he's beautiful. He's glorious. How can you not see this? And you persuade and you stay up late and you serve and you labor because God has ordained to show his love through people. He's ordained to show the beauty through beautiful people. Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and have the light go on. That's why they give glory to God, because the light happens in their hearts when they see God in your life. The second stage in saving faith after the impartation of light and the spiritual seeing of glory in the gospel is the resting of the soul in the forgiveness of sins and the promises of God. Now, I don't want to make things excessively complicated, but I would add the word at the front there. I would call it a warranted resting. That is a justified resting. A valid resting. You see, if I, if I say to somebody... God saves sinners who believe in him. Belief is the condition. And they ask me then, what is that? What is it to believe? What must I do to be saved? And they go behind the word believe. See, the reason, the reason Paul said in, in Acts 16.32 to the jailer, when he, he cries out, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus. That's earthquake shorthand. (laughs) Then he went to his house and all night, it says, he opened the word to him. He basically explained what he meant when he said that in the prison. What did you mean? Believe who is Jesus? How do I get there? How does this? And he took. Two, three hours, and then he baptized him, and then he went back to jail. So you, God can save anybody just like that. But we mustn't be content with platitudes. We must help people grasp 
The weight of the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I'm just trying to unpack that so that you can understand the nature of saving faith and how it relates to assurance here. And the first step is seeing glory in it. And then once you have been granted to see and be drawn into it, you know intuitively and spiritually I have a warrant to rest here because I've seen it and it's glorious. It's beautiful and therefore it's mine. How else can you help somebody feel that it's theirs? Now, I assume Michael Eaton will listen to these tapes. So, Michael, brother. When I read the chapter on the universality of the atonement, which is written to show that that point of Calvinism is not true, namely that Christ died for all, not just for some, and that the motive behind that was, now I can say to everybody on the street or to Christians, Christ died for you and help them have assurance Because if I can't look them in the face and say, Christ died for you, how can I give them any assurance? I think I've got your your heart there. No, I think your theology is wrong there. And my question is, how does that help assurance? To say now that the effectuality, no, let's say the extensiveness of the atonement is universal. So now I can say to everybody on the street, Christ died for you. All right. I do believe there is a sense in which you can say that. John 316, I think you can say to everybody in the world. Christ died for you in order that if you believe you might be saved. I can say that to every human being. However, now we have just pushed the problem of assurance back one step. All right. Christ died for me. Do you believe everybody's going to heaven? No, although I don't know what Michael Eaton believes about that, but I'm assuming he's not a universalist. Okay. If everybody's not going to heaven, then to say that Christ died for them doesn't mean they're saved by the death of Christ, which means they must still look for some qualification to have it take effect in their lives. And you got the problem of assurance again. So I don't see how we're helped by peeling away these things down to make saving faith and the provision of God so universal and saving faith so easy that assurance is guaranteed. I just can't guarantee assurance. I think I can weep, I can teach, I can pray. And I can point people to the sufficiency, the sufficiency, not the effectualness for them necessarily. That happens through conversion. Christ's saving death saves them when they are united with Christ through an experience of regeneration and faith. And that has to happen before they can be given assurance. And I've just tried to show you the two steps by which it happens. It happens by the miracle of seeing glory and being marveling at the sufficiency of God in the cross and standing in awe of the beauty of grace. 
This is before you have any interest in it, as the Puritans used to say. Before you're saved by it, you're seeing it as glorious. And then, because you have been granted that sight, a warranted resting in it, embracing it as your own. Because Romans 8.28, and we could use other verses, says, God will work all things together for you. That is, he will conform you to his son and bring you to glory. If you love him and are called. That's the divine side and the human side of what I've just been describing here. Do you love him? I, was, I took this sheet. I've been working off the back of this sheet. These are new, fresh notes here. I took to breakfast this morning and I read all this to Noel to get her feedback. And she said, isn't it like being married to you or being the child of my parents? That if somebody says, how do you know you're married to John? How do you have assurance that you're married to John? She probably would not, first of all, go look for the marriage certificate. She would say, we, we have a relationship. She'd look right at me and say, he's my husband. He's faithful to me. We've lived together these years. There's a bond here. Assurance is not something that can be boiled down to I signed or I prayed or I said. It is a relational, spiritual, supernatural dynamic between God and his people. And we must ask for it. We must seek to live in it and cultivate it. And when it starts to sink, we look again to the cross saying this cross is the place where the light of the glory of Christ shines. Second Corinthians 4, 4 and 4, 6. And God might be pleased. I believe he will be pleased to open my eyes again to see it and be refreshed and assured by it. Let's take two or three minutes for questions here. <laughs> the, the comment is, and question is, um, when Paul is arguing against the Judaizers who were saying you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved or sanctified or have assurance, he responded by saying we have a Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit, and isn't the Holy Spirit the seal of our regeneration, our newness, and therefore don't we rest in that as opposed to a mental work? Now, I think all I've done here is describe how the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit's See, I, back to that point about the Holy Spirit glorifying Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit imparts assurance by awakening us to the sufficiency and beauty of the glory of Christ in the gospel. I think that's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6 say. So the Holy Spirit being the seal or the guarantee, uh, the down payment of our lives is true, how he works that consciously. I mean, assurance is a conscious reality. How he works that consciously, I believe, is by consciously awakening the soul to see glory, to see beauty, to see Christ, to see a self-evidencing 
efficacy that we then embrace. So, yes, I don't think what I've said disagrees with that at all, that the spirit is a guarantee and a seal and a down payment for us. You want to follow up on that? The battle for assurance doesn't seem to come from the Bible, but seems to be a preoccupation with Puritan experience. I, I, I think. I think there was a battle and maybe maybe it wasn't as prominent as some branches of Calvinism have made it. And so there may be some distortions in the way we've handled grace in some branches of Calvinism. But at the end of Second Corinthians, there is that. Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in Christ. Um, and and uh, I think the conditions that I listed yesterday, those dozen texts that describe what must happen in your life for you to receive from Christ are texts that lead us to do self-examination. And Michael Eaton is very concerned that we not become excessive Oh, I think as I read the chapter on the faith of Christ, he would almost completely rule out introspection because he says, when you see that Christ believed for you as well as dying for you and living for you, he has believed for you. He said that virtually eliminates all introspection. That really troubles me. Both to think of a substitutionary faith troubles me because it might mean then a faithless Christianity can have assurance. And there are people in America who say if you have one slight ascent to Christ on a beach in a moment of evangelism and then live the rest of your life as an atheist, you're saved. And I fear that particular chapter in the book, Substitutionary Faith, is a dangerous concept, I think. But you're pointing out, and let us let the point be heard, the preoccupation with introspection and the wrestling with assurance in periods and streams of Calvinism seem out of sync with the New Testament. That's what you're pointing out. All right. All right. Right. Yeah, he's getting it from Gordon Fee, not referencing Michael Eaton here. And it's it's a legitimate question of do you find and you should all just weigh that. Do you find in the New Testament people wrestling with whether they Christians wrestling with whether they have assurance or not? And I want to affirm the fact that God wants you to have assurance. That's why the book of Hebrews is written. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, be earnestly desirous of maintaining the full assurance of faith in order that by faith and patience you may inherit the promises. We should have assurance. Well, that's probably enough. We, we could probably spend all the rest of our hour and a half together talking assurance. But uh, we're all in process and we're all on the way. And so just consider this a chapter in your pilgrimage and keep working on this and all the other things. But let's get to the yellow pages, <laughs> which is the practical application of these things to particular sins and particular righteousness, particular acts of righteousness. So see if I can pose the question for you now that I'm after my understanding 
is that when you maintain full assurance through the supernaturally imparted light and the resting in the sufficiency and efficacy of the cross for you so that you can say, if God is for me, who can be against me? When you have that assurance and you believe now in all the future grace that it guarantees for you, that's the key to purity. The title of the book is The Purifying Power of Living by Faith in Future Grace. So now we're going to talk about the dynamic practically of how it purifies, how it produces love. We'll start with that and then how it kills particular sins and thus how you make progress in sanctification. And I regard progress in sanctification as a subordinate means of assurance. The primary means of assurance is steadfast gazing at the cross with the Holy Spirit's illumination of the glory that's there. So that when you see it, you are drawn into it and the being drawn into it is the warrant that it is yours. When you feel it as satisfying to the soul, you may now rest in it. When that happens and you have that assurance and you're walking in that faith in future grace, first thing that happens is the beginnings of love in your life toward people. Now, just some illustrations of how this works practically. Um, let's begin in Matthew. Um, Matthew 5. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 43 following, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a distortion of the Old Testament law. Love your neighbor is certainly there in Leviticus 19. Hate your enemy is not there. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Now, this next phrase, so that you may be sons of your father. Is the kind of thing we've been talking about. Love is the evidence that you are a child of God. I think that would be a fair paraphrase so that you may be sons. That is, be shown to be sons. Because he's talking about your father. You're all, he's already your father. He's talked about our father who art in heaven and so on. This, this, the Sermon on the Mount gives to the disciples the benefit of the doubt that God is their father. Now it tells them how to live. And he says, love your enemies and so you'll prove to be, stay, persevere in sonship. Now, now the question becomes, how do you love your enemy? What is the key? Is it gratitude? God has loved me when I was his enemy. Therefore, out of gratitude for that, I will now love my enemy. And surely there's a place for feeling overwhelmed with being loved by God as his enemy and then being befriended and made his friend. 
But that's not the way the Sermon on the Mount argues. To see how this works, love of enemy, and the motive behind it, go back to the beginning of chapter 5, almost the beginning. At verse 10 following, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now keep in mind uh, that it said in verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So now you have persecutors in verse 44, and you have persecutors in verse 10. We're told to love them and pray for them in verse 44. Now, verse 10 says, blessed are you when they persecute you. You're persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Which is harder, to pray for your enemy or to rejoice in the midst of persecution? I think it's harder to rejoice. I can Name an enemy. I can pray for them in a minute. Change them. That's easy. And not too much transformation has to happen inside of me to do it. That may not be genuine love and prayer for them. For there to be genuine love and prayer, something deeper has to happen. And the deeper thing is this joy in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted. If you can do that, you can love. If you are seething with bitterness and anger and rage at what they've done to your child or what they're about to do to you or how they have misrepresented you, you can't love them. So that inner thing has to be overcome with a superior satisfaction. In this text called joy. Rejoice. In it. And then the question comes, where does that joy come from? And verse 12 says, for your reward is great. Heaven. That's future grace. Where does love come from? Love comes from being satisfyingly overwhelmed that my future in heaven is going to so outstrip the temporary sufferings of this persecution that I do not need to get bent out of shape by it, can rejoice in God in it, and thus have the emotional wherewithal to actually love my persecutors. That's a different dynamic than saying, 
God loved me when I was an enemy. Now I've got to love them because they're my enemies. To be able to face the future and the persecution looks like life is going to be hard. They may torture me. They may, may lie about me. They may kill me. They may kill my children. How do you walk into that with a sense of profound satisfaction in God that overcomes rage and anger and bitterness and moves right forward into love? And the answer is, for your reward is great in heaven. I did a funeral Saturday a week ago, the day before Easter, for a 38-year-old mom of four in our church who died of cancer agonizingly the Tuesday before. It was a horrible death. And I preached to 700 people, and they had written me notes. Some of them say something about this suffering. Say something about this suffering. Because you've taught us that God is sovereign. You've taught us that nothing comes into our life in vain. You've taught us that God works everything together for good. And she suffered to the last minute horribly. To what end, Pastor? There was no life left to live in fresh new holiness. To what end? And among other things that I said, her husband sitting here and her four children, three, six, eight, and twelve, listening to what I would say. And the last thing I went to was this slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. And I said, and this was after about 15 minutes of other things that I was saying about what faith looks like when all you can do is gurgle through your horrible lungs and cry out, my God, my God, where are you? And I argued from the cross that when Jesus said that, it was faith. And I don't have time to argue that here from Psalm 22 and the fact that it's my God, not you, God. But, but I, I came to the point where I said, the bottom line, Glenn, is that your wife, for some purpose that only God has for her, and I don't know why her and, and not others, God was working for her an eternal weight of glory. The text says, this slight momentary affliction, and by that it means a lifetime of suffering. That's what it means in Paul's context. A lifetime of suffering is a slight momentary affliction. He didn't mean one whipping. He meant years and years of persecution are a light and momentary affliction in comparison to an eternal that corresponds to momentary weight, that corresponds to light of glory. And so I just said over and over again to him, I said, whatever she experienced, God was working through it an eternal weight of glory for her.
That's the bottom line meaning here. The only source at that crisis moment of assurance and love to each other and to God is faith in future grace. The weight of glory is coming. That's all, that's all I had to say. Because there was nothing on earth for her to experience after this. You know, if you, if you go through a hard thing now, a tremendously hard thing, you can say, according to Hebrews 12, it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why my father is disciplining me. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. There was no peaceful fruit of righteousness at the end of his suffering. She died. She gurgled her way into glory, gasping and crying and screaming that her husband would kill her. And all I know to say is, if there's not a future grace that somehow corresponds in intensity to that, I've got no gospel. In fact, I put it like this. I, I pictured her in heaven. I, I stood beside that body with him weeping. I got there about three hours after she died. And he said to me, I think she suffered as much as Jesus. And I said, Maybe. If so, when they looked at each other three hours ago, they didn't have to say very much. And then at the funeral, I said, but suppose Jesus said to her at that moment. Is it worth it? I think your wife, Glenn, I think Patty would have said it would be worth 10,000 deaths. When you come to that point of counting not just death as gain, but the horror of suffering that is going on right now in this world for tens of thousands of people who are God's children, not just others who may say, well, that's judgment. But God's children are being tortured today. God's children are dying of cancer. God's children have big tumors eating away their voice boxes and making it unable for them to swallow. When you believe that, that that's gain, that you can rejoice in that, then you can love in that. That's my point here. Love is born of faith in future grace. And if we don't have a future beyond that, that compensates for it and is 10,000 times greater than it, we will panic. We will be horror-stricken. We will be full of rage and there will be no sweet resting in the midst of persecution and no love either. Let me illustrate that from Hebrews now. I said this was the great book of assurance. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. It is also the great book of sacrificial obedience. Probably no 
three sequential, four sequential, a greater impact on the theology that I write about than Hebrews 10, 11, 12, and 13. So let me give you the high point in each of those chapters that have shaped my theology that I'm trying to get across at this point. Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So here we have a suffering young church. Sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So evidently some had been put in prison, others had not been, and those who had not been had to decide whether to identify with them. Because verse 34 says, for you had compassion on the prisoners. So some were in prison, some were not. The decision had to be made, will we love them at the risk of our lives by going to visit them in the prison? And they did. And look what it cost them. You had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, let's think hard about this. Here they are in a little prayer meeting. Their wives, their children, their aunts, their uncles, their friends are down in a lockup. In those days, this is not a you don't have television in prison. And probably no food except what relatives bring you and slide under the door. If we go, they're going to know we're Christians too. And we might wind up in there or they might just kill us or they might burn our house down. Or there might be some mob violence. Shall we go underground here or shall we go there and love our friends and our relatives? And they have a little argument and a little prayer session and somebody says, didn't Psalms, the psalm say, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life? Psalm 63, 3. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And another one sang in a time warp, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's go. And they went and they did burn their house down or whatever plundering the property means. See that? And they looked over their shoulders on the way to the prison in the path of love. I'm explaining where does love come from? Where does love come from in Brighton? The answer is it comes from joy. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And where does that come from? And that's the end of the verse. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Future grace begets faith. Faith in future grace begets joy. Joy in the midst of persecution releases love. That's what I see in these verses. Without that kind of love, the Great Commission is not going to be finished today. It's going to cost you your life to finish the Great Commission. You want to be a part of that? 
You better learn how to live by faith in future grace because you're going to die. Some of you in this room are going to die in obedience to Jesus. And you won't stick it out if you don't believe that you have a better possession and an abiding one. That it's gain. You won't stick it out. You'll go to the suburbs, buy a nice little house, play church, and feel safe and awful. I wonder if you hear the psalm that I hear in verse 34 when it says, you have a better possession and an abiding one. Better and abiding. Better and abiding. Ring any bells? Better implies there's a quality to it that surpasses anything the world can give you. Abiding implies there's a length to it that never ends. That's Psalm 1611. Last verse. I'm sorry. 1160? No, 1611. That's right. Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forever. That's better. It's full. And it's forever. That's abiding. So if you ask me, what's the possession in verse 34? Answer, God. Not streets of gold, not everlasting golf. (laughs) Sorry. Not restoration with my mother. But Jesus, God, face to face, growing in the capacity to know him and enjoy him forever. Now look at chapter 11, verse 24 and 25 and 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing, rather, to share ill treatment with the people of God. This is exactly what happened in chapter 10, verse 32. They went to the prison. They showed compassion on the saints at great Risk. So here's Moses choosing ill treatment. Now you may say that doesn't sound like Christian hedonism, to which my response almost always is keep reading. Choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse, suffered for the Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he looked to the reward. Where did Moses get the liberty and the power to embrace ill treatment in the path of love to serve an ornery people of God. Everything going well in your church? You live in another world. There are problem, problem people 
problem relationships, problem schedules, problem parking, problem with offices, problem with city officials, problems, problems, problems. Why would anybody want to be a pastor or the leader of Israel through the wilderness? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And it says, he considered abuse suffered for the Christ wealth. Why? Because he looked into the future at the reward. Just another word for future grace. That's what I mean by faith in future grace. He looked at his life. I can have any woman in this palace I want. He looked at the University of Egypt. I can have all the wisdom and status I want. He looked at housing. He looked at clothing. And then he looked at those people. And he looked at the wilderness. And he looked somehow at some promised land out there somewhere. And he thought, sure would be nice here. Really safe, really comfortable. Another 40 years or 80 of ease and maximum earthly joys. I've got it all. And he said, rubbish. Because he looked to the reward. He looked to Christ. He looked to the Messiah. He looked to the coming new age. And he said, that's worth 10,000 wildernesses. And if you don't, if you don't come to that position, I don't know how you'll stay in the ministry. I don't know how you'll love people when the going gets rough. If you don't look to the reward, look to the kingdom. Chapter 12, verse 2. 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, running marathons is hard. It hurts. You hit the wall. Different walls. It hurts. Run it. Run it. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, modeling for you, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of God. The greatest act of love that has ever been performed was carried, sustained, and motivated by the hope of joy. Jesus didn't rise above hedonism. Because... Hedonism is the means by which God gets the glory. When you delight more in what God promises you than in running away from the cross or calling 12 legions of angels to rescue you. When you delight more in the joy offered you in God's presence and fellowship surrounded by a redeemed people than you delight in maximizing earthly comforts, God gets the glory. And that's why Jesus would never dare to rise above Christian hedonism. Because God matters to him. 
What else should he be motivated by than to be with his father? Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Bring me back to glory with my praising people. That's the glory. That's the joy that I will endure this for. He's not some masochist. One pastor with tears in his eyes at Kester last week said to me, you have rescued me from a full commitment to Christian masochism. Into Christian hedonism. Do you see why these chapters matter so much to me? Chapter 10, 32, you see it. Chapter 11, 26, you see it. Chapter 12, verse 2, you see it. Chapter 13. Let's go with him outside the camp, bearing abuse for him. For here we have no lasting city, but we look for a city which is to come. Exactly the same thing. Let's go with him. Bear abuse for him. 13, 13, 13, 14. Let's go with him. Come on. He suffered outside the camp for us. He purchased the city. You don't need a beautiful city here. Leave it. Go wherever he calls. Because we have a city that's coming. We have a city. You don't need 80 years of comfort here. You got 80 trillion ages of years. Coming. Lay it down and love in the hope of future grace. Well, this is a good break time. So we'll have an hour and a half or so, I'm sure an hour, hour and a half, to talk about covetousness and anxiety and lust and impatience and bitterness. I wanted to put the positive thing first, namely love. But now we need to we need to get mean with these other sins after lunch. So I will pray with you. And unless there are announcements, which there may be, we'll dismiss and come back. Let's let's pray again. Father, these are weighty and frightening things to be reading about model Christians who Rejoiced over the plundering of their property and who counted abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt and for the joy set before him endured a horrible, horrible agony of crucifixion and who choose to go with him outside the camp to Golgotha and bear reproach for him because we have here no lasting city, but hope for a city which is to come. These are scary things. But what a joy. What a satisfaction the promise of future grace can break in with. And I just ask that you give it. Give it, oh God. Grant that these not be words, that these not be just analytical, logical, informational things here, but the sight of the glory of God in the gospel and the hope of glory forever would be such a weight of glory that we would be that kind of people and be released from the things that hinder love and set us on the Calvary road to serve others at any cost. 
I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.